This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 25, The Trojan War. The story of the Trojan War is a mythological story that has been passed down from generation to generation and has been artistically depicted many times throughout history. The Warner Brothers Film Studio made a film about it called Troy in 2004. However, the first portrayal of events surrounding the Trojan War were perhaps recorded in writing over two and a half thousand years ago and seemingly referred to a period of time which seems consistent with an age of prosperity and activity on the Greek mainland which points us towards last week's episode about the Mycenaeans. However, the Trojan War did not take place in the Mycenaean heartlands. According to the stories, they took place elsewhere. Last week, We mentioned how the 19th century German archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann discovered a golden mask within a tomb uncovered at the ancient site of Mycenae. He instantly proclaimed this to be the mask of Agamemnon. Schliemann knew of Agamemnon because he had read the mythological stories of the Greeks that claimed him to be a powerful king of Mycenae. As far as he was concerned, this golden mask belonged to him without question. However, modern science has given us very good reason to dispute this. So, what is the story of the Trojan War? And is there any possibility of it being true? Well, in this week's episode, we will explore both of these questions. story. Ancient works describe a great many characters and circumstances in and around the time of the Trojan War. So the Trojan War itself has been determined through the many works available. The most famous author for whom we regard as a scribe of the Trojan War is Homer. However, we don't really know who Homer is, as he himself has become a legendary character. The existence of Homer is referenced in regard to the literary works called Iliad and Odyssey, which both discuss activity, contemporary and related to the Trojan War. The fact that this is the only evidence we have of Homer's existence has created something called the Homeric question, which basically is the question of whether he was even real. Some have suggested that his work is the work of many scribes or storytellers and that there may well have never been a person called Homer. 
the other scriptures that talk of Mycenaean dated Greek culture are called the epic cycle and refers to multiple works that are not attributed to the pen of Homer. These multiple works of the epic cycle are compared and counter-compared to the Homeric works in something described as neo-analysis. However, there is a general thread that can be followed and told as the story behind the Trojan War. Last week, I described the emergence of a Mycenaean settlement that we refer to today as Sparta, which is a considerably famous city-state of classical Greece, as we will surely discover in future podcasts. Homeric works refer to a king of Mycenaean Sparta called Menelaus. Menelaus was married to Helen, who is popularly known today as Helen of Troy. Helen was the most beautiful woman in the world, although I'm not sure if this was determined by some sort of global beauty pageant or not. Nonetheless, Helen was abducted by Prince Paris of Troy. Understandably, Menelaus was not pleased about the fact that his wife had been abducted and neither was his brother, who we know of already, Agamemnon. The king of Mycenae and Mycenae, quite nearby to his brother, Menelaus's kingdom at Sparta. The two kings took a Mycenaean army of troops across the Aegean Sea to Troy with the intent of going to war with the city over their Prince Paris's actions. Upon arriving at Troy, they besieged the city for ten years. However, despite ten years under siege, the Trojans were able to hold out long enough for the Mycenaeans to give up. The Mycenaeans decided to sail away in defeat. However, they did leave a large constructed wooden horse behind. The Trojans, being careful to ensure that the Mycenaeans had got back into their boats and left, decided to bring the wooden horse into their city as a trophy of their glorious success in resisting the siege. The Trojans would celebrate what they would see as their victory. That night, the wooden horse would reveal its true purpose. Hidden inside its wooden frame, Mycenaean warriors who had been waiting quietly and patiently for their opportunity to strike, did so. They would emerge from the horse and from within the city they would open the gates. Under the cover of night, the Mycenaean fleet had come back to Troy and disembarked before approaching the city through the open gates. The Mycenaeans would overwhelm the city of Troy. Trojan citizens were butchered, treasures were stolen and the city was burned to the ground. Troy had fallen. So that was a very brief synopsis of the Trojan War. In reality, the texts available describe a great many interactions 
between the Greeks and the Trojans and their associated characters and also the personal involvement of many Greek gods. For example, Helen of Troy, who we mentioned in the story, is believed to be the daughter of Zeus. Yes, the same Zeus who is the father of King Minos, the first king of Minoan Crete in Greek mythology, something we discovered in episode 23. Also, the same Zeus who is the father of Heracles, the hero of Greek mythology who is strongly associated with the Punic deity Melkart, something we discussed in episode 10, and the Egyptian deity Herisheth, who we mentioned in episode 13. Last week we spoke of the Mycenaean culture and how after 1200 BCE it appeared to disintegrate either due to natural disasters, foreign invasion or dissent between its own city-states or even a combination of some or all of these factors. After this time we really struggle to tell exactly what happened in the Greek lands because archaeological evidence is scant with a lack of written material and cultural artisanry. We don't really see much that we can create a narrative from for about the next three or four hundred years of history until the re-emergence of powerful city-states around the year 800 BCE and the emergence of Homeric stories, the epic cycle and the growth of Greek mythology. If you can imagine being a resident of the Greek mainland around the year 800 BCE, you would have stumbled across ruined sites that no one would have had any living memory of. It would make sense for there to be wise old men or women that would tell stories of the days of these ruined sites when they were once thriving communities. These stories would have been passed down to them by the elders of their own youth and with each generation stories of characters who were supposed to have been around during these times would have also been included with these verbal narratives. Good raconteurs of the time would have dressed up the characters with fascinating grandeur and mystique and may have contributed towards the first written accounts of these stories. If Homer indeed was a real person who was a poet with lost eyesight and alive in the 8th century BCE, then we could describe Hesiod as his contemporary. Hesiod was also a poet, and some would describe him as Homer's main rival as the premier poet of the ancient Greek world. Among the many works attributed to Hesiod, one in particular is called Theogony. This work is believed to have been the first work to categorically state the Greek view of cosmogony, that is, the creation of the universe, and as the title suggests, the origin of the Greek gods. It would be reasonable to assume that this work would have been influenced by those verbal stories, not only of the historical Mycenaean world, but of those carried into Greek lands from foreign lands, such as Assyria, Babylonia or Egypt. 
Theogony claims that chaos is the first thing to have existed in the universe. From chaos came Gaia, the personification of the earth, represented by a female. Gaia gave birth to the heavenly sky called Uranus and represented by a male. Both planet and sky, Gaia and Uranus, procreated resulting in the birth of those Greek deities called the Titans. The youngest of the Titans was called Cronus and he would take a sharp instrument rather like a sickle and castrate his father Uranus and take his position as the head of the gods. Another of the Titans, a daughter of Gaia and Uranus, was called Rhea. Therefore, Rhea was Cronus' sister, but with Cronus she procreated and one of the children was Zeus, the god of the sky and thunder. So we now have something which connects the cultures which emerged from the Dark Ages following the late Bronze Age collapse. The Greek pantheon of deities would become the dominant classical world story of deities as the Greeks themselves began the most influential classical culture of the Mediterranean throughout the first millennium BCE. We can see this influence especially in the stories of ancient Egypt that have come down to us, especially in the names of the city such as Memphis, Thebes, Hierakonpolis, Heracleopolis and many, many more. These names are not the original Egyptian names of these places. Zeus plays a major part in the story of the Trojan War. It was he who appeared in the dream of a certain Mycenaean king known to us as Agamemnon. The same Agamemnon who took the Mycenaean armies across the water in honour of his besmirched brother Menelaus and the same Agamemnon who was proclaimed by the German archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann as the original owner of the Golden Mask excavated at Mycenae in the 19th century. Archaeology The Golden Mask of Agamemnon is a bit of a joke in itself. The Golden Mask has been dated no more recent than 1500 BCE, which if we believe that a Trojan War took place and believed to be in around 1200 BCE, then there's no possible way that Agamemnon could have been alive when this mask was created or placed in its tomb. So it was a bit overly exuberant of Heinrich Schliemann to claim that it was the mask of Agamemnon, one of the stars of the Homeric works. When it comes to the location of Troy, nobody knew where this was, but in the 1820s a Scottish geologist called Charles McLaren suggested a site called Hissolik on the west coast of the Anatolian landmass within the Ottoman Empire. It would not be until the 1860s that this site was re-evaluated by an English self-taught archaeologist called Frank Calvert. Calvert recommended the site to Schliemann and Schliemann muscled in 
and used his available budget to carve a great trench through the middle of the mound in search of Troy, with claims of the destruction of many precious treasures in the process. However, Schliemann's over-exuberance did discover a city that had apparently been burned to the ground, but it was still not enough to convince experts that this site was actually Troy. Schliemann would persist by claiming that jewellery and precious objects belonging to Helen and Paris's father, the King Priam of Troy, even smuggling items away from the site behind the back of the Ottomans. When it was discovered that the artefacts dated to a period too early to be the Troy of the Trojan War, Schliemann then realised that he had destroyed much of the more recent layers in his desperate and hurried quest, and that he had also upset the Ottomans too much to simply return to the site and carry out more work. Schliemann was obliged to make a sizeable donation to the Ottomans to make up for his deceptive behaviour and buy himself a new opportunity to arrange a new excavation project to take place. However, Schliemann would never oversee this project as he collapsed into a coma on Christmas Day 1890 with a cholesteatoma which he chose to delay getting treated. He would die the following day. It would have to come down to Schliemann's colleague Wilhelm Dirpfeld, another German archaeologist, to pick up the work and continue. Dirpfeld would be much more considerate in his approach to excavation than Schliemann, and he would successfully discover city walls at the preferred level that would point towards the correct date. These walls seem to match the description of Troy's city walls as described in Homer's Iliad. There were also considerable amounts of Mycenaean ceramics discovered alongside, so the site of Hisalik was to be taken more seriously again. Troy So let's have a look at the site of Hisalik, which is now widely accepted to be the most distinct possibility for the correct site of Troy. We described how Schliemann excavated too deep and discovered a layer of occupation that dated back to around 2300 BCE. This is called Level 2 or Troy 2. After it was established that this layer was too old, Dirpfelt worked at a shallower level believed to have dated to around 1250 BCE and containing Mycenaean ceramics. This is called level 6, or Troy 6. The site has 9 levels, all of which have been identified numerically. The deepest and oldest level is Troy 1, and the most shallow level is Troy 9. And we can build a story based on the discoveries found at each level since the work of Dirpfeld. The location of the site must have been of great strategical importance. It was in good range of the Hellespont. The Hellespont is a natural waterway which offers unique access to the Sea of Marmara and in turn the Black Sea from the Aegean Sea. So any peoples 
who had control of the Hellespont would have had control over any seafaring trade between the bodies of water either side and the coastal land surrounding them. In the modern world we call this waterway the Dardanelles, so it would make sense for there to be significant settlements in this area of Anatolia. In around the year 3000 BCE, a citadel was constructed at the top of the high point of the site. There were around 20 mud brick buildings constructed too. We can't really say too much about the identity of these peoples, but it must have been a successful site, possibly due to having some kind of monopoly over the Dardanelles, and a subsequent control over the trade through this waterway. The second layer at Troy points towards an increase in population, and this would have been the era of the city's history that Schliemann wrongly believed to be the mythological Troy of the Trojan War. The one thing that confused Schliemann into believing that this city was Homeric Troy was the fact that it appeared to have been destroyed by fire, which seems consistent with the story of the Mycenaean destruction of the city. It would make sense for there to be competition for control of the city, but once again we don't know enough about the cultures of the area to be able to suggest who was competing with who. After the destruction of the city, perhaps in around 2300 to 2200 BCE, we notice a much more humble period for the site. The city would become condensed within sturdy fortifications, possibly signifying an economic downturn with less evidence of wealth and more evidence of preserving and protecting what they do have. This seems to go along until around 1900 BCE when fortunes appear to change. This is more interesting than it may initially seem due to the fact that this period of time demonstrates similar effects in different areas. For example, if we go back to episode 13 on the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, we discover that a period of low Niles caused the steep decline of the old Kingdom of Egypt before the country descended into civil unrest. Also, if we go back to episode 2 regarding the Akkadian Empire, we talk of the decline and fragmentation of the Akkadian Empire, and also the abandonment of the site of Tel Lelan in northern Mesopotamia. We suggested that this could all be linked to a climatic aridification event called the 4.2 kilo year event, which caused global droughts and this might explain the alteration in the nature of Troy during this period. The next layers are probably the ones that we are most interested in when it comes to identifying whether it can be linked in any way to being the legendary city of Troy. What we can establish about the sixth level is that the population may have grown to as many as 8,000 people. A successful city of this many people would have certainly have needed to rely on trade, and if they were no longer in direct control of the Dardanelles due to the fact that the city was around three miles from the waterway, then that may have led to a relationship with the city that was in control of it. It does seem that textiles were prominent goods of the city with evidence of spinning and weaving. 
It does also seem possible that Trojans were working with purple dye, and maybe the same purple dye that the Phoenicians would come to use to such good effect that it would directly relate to their given name, Phoenician, that was given to them by the Greeks and referred in the ancient Greek language to this purple colour that was available on Mediterranean coastlines via the Murex sea snail. The Fall of Troy So, Hisalik is as good a place as any to be the city of Troy. There are a lot of factors about Hisalik that would make it reasonable. The Hittites called this site Wilusa, which seems to be cognate with the Greek name Ilium, which is the root of the name of the Homeric epic Iliad. It is believed that Troy would have been the centre of an area of influence we refer to as Troad. The Greeks in Homer's works are actually referred to by the name Achaeans, but we know that it is likely that these people were Mycenaean in their Peloponnesian homeland and subsequently their culture. So if the story tells us that the Achaeans defeated the Trojans, then we should surely find evidence of a Mycenaean occupation of Hisalik. This is the subject of debate, with some claiming it's truth and others suggesting otherwise. Certainly, there are remnants of Mycenaean occupation along the same western Anatolian coastline to suggest that the Mycenaeans were interested in and not intimidated by extending their influence to include cities as far afield as Hisalik. A date of around 1275 to 1250 BCE has been offered as the time when Troy 6 was destroyed, and it would be a short while after that that we see the emergence of Troy 7, which itself disappears after 1100 BCE, which seems accurate compared to the decline and disappearance of the Mycenaeans. One of the first observations is that Troy 6 appears to have been destroyed by an earthquake. So this is not consistent with a destruction by military attack and by a load of people jumping out of a wooden horse. Ceramic remains of a Mycenaean stole can be found in Troy 6 and Troy 7. This could strongly suggest an occupation of the sites by the Mycenaeans, although there is no reason why this pottery would not be there due to trade between the Trojans and the Mycenaeans. The Greek Boston website claims that there is a Mycenaean cemetery at the periphery of the citadel. The cemetery contains Mycenaean grave goods, but also contains cremations. Cremations are interesting because we associate cremation with the Hittites and the Trojans, but not so much for the Mycenaeans who favoured burials. However, there does appear to be evidence of cremation and other Anatolian sites linked with the Mycenaeans. I think it can depend on whether your heart wants to believe that Hisalik is Troy or not as to how you will interpret all of the information. The facts are that Hisalik was destroyed and subsequently reoccupied by somebody at the correct sort of time. The site 
would have surely been known to the Mycenaeans due to its strategical location being a vital bearing on the sea-based trade routes. If Hissalik was destroyed and the Mycenaeans knew about it, then they would have been very interested in it. The fact that there are cremations which is not consistent with known Mycenaean culture must be thought about with caution. We have to remember that the Mycenaeans were not a united kingdom, but a patchwork of kingdoms with a cultural similarity, which has been branded by modern scholars as Mycenaean. It is not unreasonable for some, especially in Anatolia, to have taken up cremation. It was practised by future Greek cultures too. The biggest issue we have is the fact that it appears that the destruction of Troy was the work of an earthquake, as previously mentioned. This could suggest that Hisalik is not Troy, and even worse, that Troy and the Trojan War is a total myth based on human imagination. However, could the Mycenaeans have besieged Hisalik, just like in the story, but failed and left, only to find that the earthquake occurred as soon as they left, and that maybe the Trojan horse story is a way of dressing up the manner in which the Mycenaeans were able to replace the Trojan population of Hisalik. Also, there has been some tantalising evidence of fire damage, human remains and arrowheads discovered at Hisalik that date to around 1190 BCE, and this dates to a period during Troy 7. So this could be evidence of destruction by war, and once again we swing back to the possibilities of the mythology of Troy being based on truth. Mycenaeans built their wealth on seafaring raids and controlling trade routes inherited from the Minoans, and created by themselves, so attacking Hisalik would have been in their character. The spoils of such an invasion would have very much been in their interest. They were competent at wooden shipbuilding, and they would have been quite capable of building a vessel shaped like a horse. However, it doesn't seem feasible for Mycenaeans to waste good time, energy and resources building a horse, and certainly they couldn't have expected the Trojans to instantly want to bring the thing within their city walls without any kind of concern about what it was and why it had been built. It is possible that the horse may have held some kind of spiritual status within Aegean societies, however. A clay model horse was found at Hisalik dating to this period. It is also not unreasonable that underhanded tactics were used in ancient city sieges, such as the use of fifth columnists, which can be best described as sympathisers for the enemy, and therefore rendering themselves as the enemy within. This is also the time of the late Bronze Age collapse, which we have already discovered to be steeped in mystery. If the Mycenaeans invaded Hisalik, then it may have been to escape the advance of the Dorians, who were invading the Peloponnesian homelands of the Mycenaeans. This in turn could have had a knock-on effect. Waves of people migrating across the sea and land. The Western Anatolians, and possibly the original Trojans, may have been forced into Hittite lands. Seafaring peoples 
landing on the coasts of Egypt. The connections and possibilities are absolutely fascinating. We can be sure that Mycenaean culture had disappeared by 1100 BCE, either through invasion and natural disaster, leaving many of their major settlements destroyed. Conclusions As you have heard, the amount of supposition regarding the Trojan War is huge, but this is what has made it so imagination-stirring ever since. The human quest for truth against mythology is a powerful motivator, both for truth-seekers and for those who love using their imagination. Those involved in performing arts are allowed the ability to exaggerate and dramatise without fear of being told that they were wrong, because the mystery grants licence to those wishing to exploit these opportunities. The reality is that we do not know whether the Trojan War happened or not, and even if it did, we don't know how many, if any, of the characters described in the various texts ever existed. Regardless, what became of King Menelaus of Sparta and his brother, King Agamemnon of Mycenae? Also, what of Menelaus's wife, Helen, and her captor, Prince Paris of Troy. Many battles took place during the Siege of Troy. Although in some texts we find Paris described as a bit of a coward, he is responsible for the death of the great Greek warrior Achilles. Legend has it that the only vulnerable spot on Achilles' body was one of his heels and Paris was able to hit Achilles' heel with an arrow. Of course, we use the term Achilles' heel to refer to a specific weakness or vulnerable point of something in modern language. We also see this reference used for the Achilles' tendon, which is the tendon which connects the calf muscle to the heel. Paris would then go on to be killed himself before the end of the siege, and it may have been the Greek warrior Philoctetes, who can be attributed with this act. How Helen felt about this is debatable. Some accounts suggest that Helen was kidnapped by Paris, somewhat against her will, but others claim that Helen eloped with Paris behind her husband's back. So the death of Paris may have come as a devastating blow for Helen, now alone in Troy. However, the time had now come to end the siege and instigate the ultimate deception with the Trojan horse. A Trojan, in computing terms, is synonymous with a Trojan horse, which can be a virus which the user is duped into accepting by clicking on something that looks like something harmless and therefore a dangerous deception. It has also come to be used to represent financial deceptions between companies and consumers where the consumer thinks that they are buying a product but in actual fact they are falling into the trap of a greater financial commitment. One source claims that the Greek warrior Philoctetes, slayer of Paris, 
was one of the men hidden inside the Trojan horse. However, by all accounts, we can determine that King Menelaus of Sparta, husband of Helen, was definitely in there. What followed was the successful massacre of the Trojans and the sacking of the city. Afterwards, Menelaus would take his wife Helen back to the Peloponnese. Some accounts say that Menelaus considered killing her, but she would avoid this fate, perhaps because of her beauty. Homer's Odyssey suggests that she and Menelaus were reconciled and ultimately lived harmoniously as husband and wife afterwards. Not all accounts attest to this though, with many differing outcomes. As for Agamemnon, the man that Schliemann determined to be the owner of the Golden Mask, he is believed to have been killed on his return to Greek lands by his estranged wife, Clytemnestra, or her lover, Aegisthus. And there we have it, an episode which wasn't originally planned, but I couldn't resist it, it was just too much of a temptation for me, so I created the episode and put it in, and now hopefully you might have more insight into your feelings about whether Troy actually existed and how much of the Trojan War is based on truth and whether it is part of the late Bronze Age collapse story, whether it's just a small part of Mycenaean control over the Hellespont and who who knows what else we could draw from those conclusions but whatever you do draw from them please do let me know I really do want to hear from you on this one what was Troy all about the Trojan War and all of that how true was it and what do you believe actually happened I'm waiting to hear from you so please do email in and but the best place to come is the discussion forum where we can share our ideas with each other. So just go to the historyoftheworld.com, uh, historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and go to the discussion forum, which is in the interact section. As ever, if you want to support the podcast, you can also click on the Patreon link once again at the same website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com and make a monthly donation there are rewards for those of you who are kind enough to make monthly donations and help to keep the podcast going Uh, for those of you that are not really keen on parting company with your money then by all means please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to us because that's also like gold dust now obviously there are a lot of resources that are used to produce the History of the World podcast. And over the amount of podcasts that we've done, we've used so many books and artefacts and information links that it's only correct, really, that we try to put as many of those into one place as possible. So we've just updated the links section of the website, so the history of the world podcast.com. Once again, uh, they're side by side. You've got the links section and the bibliography section. So, if you like to read books on any given subject, then the bibliography section is 
uh, is a great long list of all the publications, all the printed publications that I have used uh, in order to gather information for the History of the World podcast. And then also a lot of the links that I've found very useful in terms of gathering information, internet links from the World Wide Web, uh, they're all put there in one place on the links section and they're all helpfully categorised according to which episode they were used in. So you can visit that and you can watch plenty of videos and, and one thing and another and I'm frequently adding to it. So please do go along to the website, have a click around. If uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, then it doesn't have to end at the end of the podcast. You can then go and revisit some of the information and find out some new stuff by visiting the pages mentioned. Now, as ever, we uh, produce the podcast and we uh, new news comes out all the time, so that changes somewhat some of the information that we may have spoken about in the past on previous podcast episodes, um, such as uh, the, the discovery of a Mitanni city in Iraq that could open up a possibility in terms of learning more about that culture. But one of the things that came out uh, this week was the discovery of Homo sapiens bones, or what potentially could be Homo sapiens bones, that date to over 200,000 years ago in Greek lands. And this is the first that we've heard of anything sort of dating to much less than, um, or much earlier, I should say, than around uh, 40,000 years ago for Homo sapiens in Europe. So could it be possible, and I'm only supposing myself here based on what I know, that a migration of Homo sapiens went into Europe where maybe uh, Neanderthals were perhaps not as extensive in range as they would come to be, and uh, potentially these Homo sapiens may have been run out of Europe by the Neanderthals who eventually um, cemented their range right up to the Levant. So perhaps there was a little bit of a tug of war over the, um, over the millennia uh, between Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalensis and perhaps Homo sapiens did actually get into Europe around... 200,000 years ago or perhaps even earlier but there's a lot of scientific debate and investigation to take place before we can categorically uh, state one way or the other like I say it's just one um, one fragment of bone I believe if I'm not mistaken that um, purely only represents a certain part if Chris Stringer's um, if his summary of it is anything to go by then it does apparently seem that he has got doubts on his own um, suggestion that this could be a very early form of Homo sapiens. So he himself, I think, believes that more investigation should be carried out before we come out and just say, bang, there it is. There's a new fact that Homo sapiens were in Europe 200,000 years ago, but fascinating stuff nonetheless. Well, that's it. We're going to wrap up for another week now. Next week, we're going to travel somewhere else. We're going to go to the Indus Valley. Now, for those of you who don't know much about the Indus Valley, it's one of four huge river civilizations that we are exploring during this ancient uh, volume of podcasts. We've already done two. We did Mesopotamia and we did Egypt. The other one is in China. 
Now, the Indus Valley civilization was the largest um, of the ancient civilizations, and it's one that we don't talk about enough. Uh, there is so much fascinating stuff to learn about the Indus Valley civilization, stuff that will astonish you. Uh, not least of all the fact that the area that the Indus Valley Civilization covered is much bigger than uh, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, yet we just don't talk about it enough. There is a lack of understanding of their culture, however there is no getting away from some of the excavations being some of the most innovative and isolated and modern innovations that you could wish to find in the ancient world I'm sure you're going to love it so that's going to be the subject of next week's podcast the Indus Valley Civilization so I'll look forward to us linking up again this time next week and until then have a wonderful week The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms so please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.